you, Brother Dan. The title of our lesson this morning, <coughs> excuse me, is God Put on Flesh. And uh, I don't know about you, but I, I, I cannot get over that. That, that. To me, that's the most amazing thing I have ever heard, and that's going to be our topic this morning. Our objective is that as learners, we would worship, trust, and obey in Christ, and also understand that He is fully God and fully man. Will somebody please explain that to me as well? What are you shaking your head about, Wayne? I can't either, you know, but it, is it true? Yes, but yet we can't explain that. We'll be in John chapter 1, verse 18 verses today. Our family theme is that Jesus is God. Why is that important? Why is that important? That's right, amen. Without a doubt, he was more than that. He was God and is God. Three key truths. Number one, Jesus was actively involved in creation. Number two is he brought life and truth into a lost world. And number three, he was God in human flesh and he lived among us. Under our connect today, the question is, have you ever been in a cave, maybe on a sightseeing tour and they get you to a certain place and at least a few times I've done that they've warned you we're going to turn the lights out for a minute or two anybody ever experienced that before what happened what do you mean it got dark it got dark last night at my house <laughs> isn't that true I mean it's kind of an eerie darkness isn't it it's, it's, a, it's an eerie eerie darkness uh now, if you're like me, I was hoping somebody would turn them right back on. Isn't that true? Because you're right, it, it was so dark uh, in that cave when we were there at that time. And In fact, just a year ago, Pam and I weren't in a cave like that. But nonetheless, once that light comes on, what happens to the darkness? It goes away. And no matter how hard darkness tries, it cannot conquer the light. Can it? They can't overcome it. And today we're going to find out the true light of the world. How Jesus brought light into our world, and he also brought truth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I want to read verses 22 through 24. Listen to what I'm reading this morning. And Paul speaking. He said, For the Jews require a sign. And the Greeks seek at the wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block. And unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them who are, which are called both Jews and Greeks. Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Two important principles that Paul reveals there. Uh, the Jews require a sign. And every time I think about that, I wonder, are the Jews from Missouri? The show me state? You remember when God spoke to Moses about leading the children of Israel out? What did Moses ask for? 
He asked for a sign. And, what, and God gave him a sign. And the same had been true throughout the history of the Jews. They required the sign. But the Greeks, on the other hand, were different. They sought after wisdom. And it's interesting. Again, Paul is writing to the church of Corinth under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, the Jews require a sign. The, G- the Greek wisdom of the Gentiles, either way it works. He says, but we preach Christ crucified. And his point was, what I'm preaching, they need. The Jews need it, and the Greek or the Gentiles need it. Now, for the Jews, it was a stumbling block. Because they didn't dream that a Savior would come and be born in a stable. They didn't believe that their Savior would be persecuted and crucified. In fact, in their mindset, how could a common criminal be our Savior? So Christ became a stumbling block. To the Greeks, it was foolishness. No way. No way that could be because deity was so far from humanity. And they believed there were links, almost like evolution, between spirituality and humanity or flesh. And each link became less and less spiritual. There's no way, no way that Christ crucified could be the message we need. And so, again, what Paul preached was exactly what they needed. Now, it's interesting. Paul said there to the church at Corinth that Christ was the power of God and the wisdom of God to those who believe, both Jew and Greek. So how do we, how are we to understand that? How can we, how can we know what's going on here and to understand that Christ is indeed what Paul said? And if we're going to understand that, we have to go back to the very beginning. And it's interesting, when John writes his gospel, where does he, where does he start at? In the beginning. You have to go there. If you're going to satisfy the Greek mind as well as the Jewish mind. One requires a sign. One says, we want wisdom. That being said, let's go to John 1. Let's read the first three verses. Christ was actively involved in creation. Okay, thank you, Dan. Now, if we, now, bear with me here this morning, okay? This is the first time we've read this. Okay, we haven't read the rest of the chapter yet. Let that, that be our mindset. Now, I know we have, but let's think of, first of all, the first three words remind us of what? Do you what now? Okay, but is there another verse the Bible reminds us of? Genesis 1-1, which is what, Dan? Where it started at. In the beginning. I know Brother Paul's Nodgrass, he and I both used to like to listen to Vernon McGee 
when he was on the radio every day. I guess he still is at some radio stations. But I, one time he was teaching on this, and he said somebody called him one day or wrote in and said, well, where's the beginning? He says, he replied, where do you want to start? <laughs> God was there. In the beginning. So John says, in the beginning, notice it says, was the word. Now notice that word, word. What do you notice about it as you see it written in your Bible? Thank you. Meaning what? Yeah, okay. Now, Lavender, you jumped ahead. Because we don't know it's Jesus yet. But we know it's something, somebody important, because of the W being capitalized. Now, the Greek word for that word that's capitalized is logos. L-O-G-O-S. And the Greek word literally means the mind or the reason that controls the universe. The mind or the reason that controls the universe. Let that sink in. Because that would strike a chord in the minds of Greek readers. John is using a Greek word, speaking about whoever it is. And Lavinia, you're right, it is Jesus who controls the universe. The mind or the reason that controls the universe. So, again, Lavenda, you're right, but let's don't jump ahead, okay, Lavenda? I know Alan makes you do strange things, but don't do that. But think about this for a moment. John is laying some groundwork. He doesn't identify who the word is till later on because he wants to show us what the word does. So the first thing we find out about it in the beginning, in the beginning was what? The word. So whoever the word was or is, how long has he existed? Thank you. All the time. And, and the, and the Greek here really means, uh, eternal before. Okay. And we know he's from everlasting. That's the word. So in the beginning, the word was there. The logos. Number one. But the same, second thing we found out, who was the word or who was the Logos with? Who was he with? God. All right. He was in the beginning, whoever this is. He was with God. But then the third thing that John says in verse 1 is what? He was God. And then in verse 2, in case we didn't get it, the same was in the beginning with God. So the Logos was in the beginning. The Logos was with God. And the Logos was God. Now you may have never heard of the Jehovah Witnesses. I'm sure you have. But they use what they call the what's called the New World Translation. And if you were reading their Bible, their Bible would say, "In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God." And they would say the Word was a God. Is there a difference there? Yes. 
Now, I've told you many times I'm not a Greek scholar. Uh, Jeremy took two years of Greek in Bible college. And uh, most people that I've talked to have gone to Bible college, struggled with taking one year. Uh, but Jeremy, being the egghead he was, uh, decided to take two years. And uh, he said they discussed it in class. And the second year, he was so privileged, it was one-on-one because nobody wanted to take two years of Greek when he was in school. But again, he said the professor, you know, talking about this verse, said uh, the grammatical layout in Greek will not allow for the letter A. It can't. If you're going to be true to the Greek interpretation, you cannot put the letter A in there. So it wasn't that he was a god. Because see, the problem was Jehovah's Witness teach that Christ was a created being, and that's not true. He is God. Thank you, Wayne. He is God. And then, what's verse three say about the Logos? What's it say about the Logos? All things were made by him. Now, here's what's interesting, okay? In the being was the word, words with God, the word was God. We're not sure if the word is an it or a him. But now, verse 3 says, all things were made by him. It's person. And without him, the Logos, the word, was not anything made that was made. What does that mean? Thank you. He created everything. So John goes back to the beginning. And right away, he identifies that Logos as being with God, but also being active in creation. And it's interesting, John is trying to reach both Jewish and Gentile readers. And he wants them to understand that Jesus was not only God. Well, at this point, the Word is not only... See, Lavender, you got me jumping ahead now. The Word was not only God, but He was a person of the Godhead who was active in creation. So John says he was on the scene with God the Father and the Holy Spirit even before the universe came into being. Now, hold on. And by the way, we'll touch a little bit later in Colossians chapter 3. Paul uh, expands on this thought. If Jesus was there and he created all things, does the standard reason he had already existed do that? Sure he did. He was before anything was created. And here's what's interesting. Without Christ, our world would not exist. Paul said he's before all things, talking about Christ, and by him all things consist. What a fabulous truth. Now, the question that the teacher's guide asked in way of discussion, discussion here, these first three verses, how do these verses affirm the divinity of Christ? Maybe a little clearer from you, for me, how does this affirm that Christ is more than a man?
Say it again. He's in the beginning. Yes. Yeah. That's right. God does not. You know, this affirms the divinity of Christ. Now, by the way, that's why the Jehovah put the letter A God. They don't believe that Christ and God are co-equal. They believe that God created Christ. Certainly, maybe before the creation of the world, but sometime before the world was created, that God created Christ. So, again, he existed before creation. He was with God, and he was active in creating everything. Those things are some of the things that affirm the divinity of Christ. Only God can do that. And if only God can do that, then Christ, the Word, had to be God. And and certainly he was God. Any question about that before we go any farther? Any question or comment about that? Again, I read mentioned a moment ago, but it's Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. We're not going to read it. Uh, but they, uh, uh, Paul there affirms in those verses that Jesus Christ the visible man, was the visible manifestation of God and the creator of all things. Also, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, the first three verses, identify Christ as the one by whom the worlds were made. And, of course, that Christ was made in the very image of God. Now, again, we mentioned earlier, John doesn't begin out by identifying this person immediately. But what he does, he describes his nature of this person before he reveals his name. Okay? Now, remember, this word, this logos, was here before the world existed. He always has existed. The second thing, this word mind was with God. And by the way, this is a very strong Greek word. It means face to face. The third thing, not only was he with God, this word mind, this logos, he was God. He was God. Now, by the way, the very God who has no beginning has... What else does he not have? No end. No beginning or no end. Now, you have to take it by faith. Absolutely. And he never tries to. And one thing too, Pam, um, if I could explain God, there, he, I don't want him. I don't want that kind of God. And that's that's important to understand. And and back to what you said about without faith, Hebrews eleven six said, without faith is what impossible to please God. And the, and the truth is, you can't analyze him. You can't put him in a test tube. There's no uh, scientific formula that would explain God. He simply can't. He's far beyond that. So it has to be by faith. And, you know, that's a holy, maybe a, a different subject in a way. But to me, it's easier to believe that God created this world than that it came to exist by accident. Isn't that true? Uh, so I think it's easier to have faith in God doing this than faith in mere chance or Evolution and simply, uh, to me, it doesn't work that way. But that's, that's a good point. 
But here's what's interesting as well. In verse 3, uh, John talks about creation. And uh, the way he chose was interesting. Because the particular Greek verb he used about creation does not mean you took some lumber and built a house with it. You made that house out of this lumber. The verb that John uses is that God created something out of nothing. Okay? Very important distinction there. He didn't use the existing material but something coming into being from nothing. So, kind of going back to what you said, Pam, it's interesting here. Whenever somebody asks a question, where did all this come from? The best answer is Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1, 1, in the beginning, God. Everything came from God. And John 1, 3 answers that same question. It all came from God. Now, by the way, and let's apply it. Church, we can have confidence that what the Bible says about creation is true. Uh, Jason did a lot of study on creation with Ken Ham's material, and uh, I, I read a lot of it. I think he had some videos. I saw most of the videos. And one of the questions that Ken Ham always asks scientists when they talk about creation, his question is, were you there? What's the answer? No. So how can you be so sure? So Ken Ham said, if you don't mind, I'll take the word of the one who was there. God. He was there. And the great news is, we're not here by chance. Not at all. Christ is God. And Christ was active in creation. We talked about the first three verses affirming the divinity of Christ. How, how do the first three verses indicate uh, or point to the doctrine of a trinity? How does it point to that? You have the word, right? And you have who else? God. Okay. And in Genesis 1, the Spirit of God brooded over the face of the deep. So we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We live in a culture that's sometimes guilty of trying to change Jesus to fit in whatever's trending. Isn't that true? So my question is, Why is it dangerous to let our culture and what's popular in our world define who Jesus is? Why is it dangerous? 
Okay. Wayne, you had something to say? Exactly. Now, I must admit, I'm a little naive. And I used to get excited when I hear, would hear movie stars or maybe sports people, famous sports people talk about their spirituality. Or talk about their Jesus. But then I would dig a little deeper and find out, now wait a minute. Their spirituality is not like my spirituality. And their Jesus is not like the Jesus of the Bible. And that's why we have to let the Bible define who Jesus is. And, and by the way, isn't that what John does in the first few verses here? In the, he was there in the beginning. He was with God. And he is God. And he created all things. <laughs> and I, I kind of like the attitude, the attitude I get here. John said, let's just, let's just settle that right now, huh? Let's, let's quell that argument. It is settled. In heaven. Think about some of the people we're around on the average day. How do they, a lot of them see Jesus? How do a lot of them see Jesus? Say it again. Yeah. Now think about this. Most people like the story of Christmas. I mean, come on, who wouldn't like a baby born in a manger? And so that, that's all it is. For some, it's like a, well, I hate to even use this phrase, but kind of like a spiritual Santa Claus. Isn't that true? Their prayer life is, give me, give me, give me. <clears throat> and it's danger to live our lives that way. And that's why we have to know what the Bible says. And when the time is right, explain to our family and friends, hey, this is what the Bible says, who Jesus is. So first of all, Christ was involved in creation. Second of all, he brought life and truth to a lost world. Somebody read John 1, verses 4 through 13, please. Thank you, Alan. Wow, what a passage. Verse 4, John says, In him, <clears throat> referring to the Word, and we don't know who he is yet, John said, In him was life. What does that mean? If life is, it, if life is in him, like John says, without him, what happens? Thank you, there's no life. John said that life, that life was the light 
of men. And John said that light shined in darkness. And the King James says, and the darkness had comprehended it not. Now, most of you know that I, I almost always use the King James when I'm preaching. But the King James is, I'm not, I'm not, I don't know how to say this. I, I am definitely not putting it down. It is my favorite because it's one I'm, I was weaned on, okay? It is, the writing is excellent. But the King James is like the New American Standard. It's, they're trying to be a word-for-word -word exact tr translation. And the problem with that is, sometimes it's hard to find one English word that conveys the thought of the Greek word. Uh, my grandmother used to use a lot the, the New Amplified Bible along with her Thompson Chain Reference Bible. That before the day you had on your on your cell phone, you could have the Bible app, whatever, you know, you could run references. And the Thompson Chain Bible was about this thick. I've got one on my desk. It stays there because it takes two men and a boy to carry it. Uh, but great reference Bible. But now I can do it in the palm of my hand or on my computer. But the Amplified Bible, under a verse like that, would use three or four words to say the same thing. And again, I'm not knocking the King James or the New American Standard. They are, they try to be a word-for-word -word translation. And, um, but this word comprehend, that's certainly part of it. But it also means to overtake. It means to conquer. And all those things fit. So it's really difficult. And by the way, I, I, I looked at uh, the, the New King James. I looked at the ESV, uh, the NLT, uh, this week in looking at that verse. And I think the, King, the New King James, the King James were pretty well the same. Uh, but, and all were all similar. But the thing is, the bottom line is, when the light shines, what can overtake it? Nothing. What can, what can comprehend it? Nothing. So all of those things fit. Now, it's interesting, whether you were Jewish or Gentile, they both saw the moral universe in terms of light versus darkness. And so John says this life that was in him was like light for humanity. And John said this light is an active presence. And this light shines into the darkness. And not only was it just a Jewish Gentile thing. It's been common throughout human religious history. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. Genesis chapter 1 talks about being dark, and God spoke light into existence. Isaiah chapter 9 said people walked in darkness. Isaiah 42 is a promise that Christ would lighten the way to the Gentiles and bring them out of darkness. Isaiah 49 says that he would be a light for Gentiles. When John the baptizer's father, Zechariah, prophesied, talking about light, giving light to those in darkness.
So when John wrote this letter, those who would read it would understand exactly what John was talking about. Because, again, darkness and light appeared in the different religions uh, of the world. But here's what I want you to know. There is a struggle between light and darkness. It goes on today. But understand something. Darkness will not win the battle in the end. Light is far more powerful. Now, don't miss that, okay? Don't miss that. So when John speaks about light and darkness, what do you think he's speaking about there? What's he talking about? What's two other words we might use? Opposites. Say it again, Cheryl. Good and evil. Light being what? Good. And, of course, evil being darkness. So what does it mean to walk in the light of God's truth? What does that mean? Say it again. Okay. How's that look? How do we see it in our lives? Amen. Does it include obedience? Yes. And that's exactly what have we live it out every day in our lives. It's interesting, uh, in verse 6, John introduces another John. Who's he talking about? John the Baptist. Now remember John the, the Apostle and John the Baptist are two different people. And John the Apostle makes sure we, want, we understand who John the Baptist is. He says several things. First of all, his name, John the Baptist. Or the name of John. John the Apostle said this, John the Baptist, he came as a witness about the light. The reason John the Baptist came, he says, was to get people to believe. And John the Apostle says, John the Baptist was just a messenger about the light. He wasn't the light itself. Now, by the way, our, our Sunday school time today only covered the first 18 verses, but you need to re- read the rest of the chapter as well. Because the, uh, the religious people send an entourage out to talk to John the Baptist. What's going on? And they ask him three questions. Well, first thing John said, I'm not the light. I am not the light. Then they ask him, are you that prophet? No, I'm not him. Are you the one Moses talked about? No, nope. I'm not him. And then in verse 29, the very next day, John the Baptist, surrounded by a crowd of people, he looks over and he sees Jesus. And to answer their questions, he said, Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the people. And here John the Apostle introduces John the baptizer to us. You have to love God's word because Malachi prophesied that God would send a messenger to prepare a way. Did God do that? Yes. He sent John the baptizer. Jesus told the disciples that 
the prophecy in Malachi chapter 4 or 5 that Elijah would come again was fulfilled by John the Baptist. So John gets it out of the way. John the Apostle, that's who John the Baptist is. And John will have more to say about him, by the way. But it's interesting. Christ, the, the Creator, Christ, the true light of the world. We would expect that when He got here, the people would rejoice. But what happened? They didn't believe. And the sad thing is, the very world that Christ created didn't recognize Him. They didn't recognize Him. And what happened was, while darkness cannot overcome light, it can hinder the light. The darkness of sin. And the Bible says, He came to his own, and his own received him not. Same English word, but two different Greek words. The first one means he came to his own world. Why is it his own world? Thank you, Dick. He created it. Thank you, Wayne. Then he says his own, meaning his own people, who? The Jews. Would not receive him. But I am so glad for verse 12. But as many as received him, gave he the power, the right, the authority to become sons of God, even those that believe on his name. Amen. Amen. So, think about this. The majority of the world, then and now, don't believe who he is. Would you agree? Does that change who he is? No. Not one iota. He is still God in the flesh. And John said, make sure you understand something. We're not born again because we were born Jewish. It's not by our ancestry at all. It's not through ordinary procreation. It's not flesh and blood. It is through being born of God. And what John says here in chapter 1 Sets the stage for what he will tell Nicodemus in chapter 3. Nicodemus needed to hear that, and so, so do we. Now, by the way, do you realize without Christ, our lives would still be in darkness? Just like the rest of the world? But Christ has made the difference in our lives. 
So in way of application, we need to walk daily in God's light, in His truth. And we need to live our lives in such a way that His light shines through us and bear witness to Christ. Okay, here's a tough question, okay? Because I, I, I need to ask myself this question too. What makes us, and I'm including myself, apprehensive about sharing the truth of Jesus Christ with other people? Say it again. Okay. Somebody else. What makes us apprehensive? Anything at all? That's that part of it, yes, indeed. Some people are bashful, I realize that. But whatever you do, folks, don't be ashamed to share the good news of Christ. I don't know how long it took for me to register my hard head, but when Paul wrote in Romans one sixteen, he wasn't ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. So when when are we going to learn... It's not us that have the power. It's not our cute words or our, our ability to articulate it. Where's the power at? It's in the gospel. It is in the gospel. Number one, Jesus was actively involved in creation. Number two, he brought life and truth to a lost world. Number three, Jesus was God in human flesh living among us. Anybody want to read verses 14 through 18? Thank you, Cheryl. Hold on, folks. This is great. Not because I'm saying God's Word says it. In verse 1, John said, In the beginning was the Word. In verse 14, he said what? And the Word was made flesh. Now, i got to tell you, folks, That statement in verse 14, the Jews and Gentiles found it unbelievable. It was astounding. The Creator, the Word, who made everything else, John says, became a part of creation. Became a part of creation. And he didn't become a rock or a star in the sky. He became what? A human being. He became flesh. Now we quite under, we can understand a little bit better why John approached it the way he did. 
Because John, before the chapter is over, when you get to verse 14, if they're wearing socks, he's going to shock those socks off of them. John said the Word was in the beginning, and that Word became flesh. And verse 14 is why it was so important that John established in the first part of the chapter just who the Word was. He was in the beginning with God. He was God. He was the Creator. And if John had explained that first, verse 14 wouldn't matter. So what? A lot of people become flesh. A lot of people are born human beings. And again, and we all, and I do too, we talk about the incarnation becoming flesh, and that's true. But remember, becoming flesh means literally becoming a living human being. And for the Greeks, uh uh, deity wouldn't do that. No way. There's no way deity would do that. But not only that, John said, he dwelt among us. He became a human, and he dwelt, or he tabernacled, among us. How much time I got left? Did you ring a bell already? Oh, okay. Am I out of time yet? Okay. And the particular word that John uses for dwelling among us, it literally means... Dwelling in a tent. So God came and he camped out among us. Now remember who's writing this. Who was it? John. What privilege, what privilege did he have for three and a half years? He walked with Jesus. And I can't say it for sure. But I wonder if John didn't lay his pen down when he came to this part. And we beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and of truth. I don't believe John ever got over that. In one of his, one of his epistles, he said, we touched and we handled the very word of life. The word became flesh, and he tabernacled among us, and he was full of grace and full of truth. And my friend, without grace, we could never handle that truth. Let's all stand. Next week, John chapter 3. The necessity of a new birth. Father, thank you for your precious word. Thank you for a God who would take on humanity, become human, and dwell among us, and to die for our sins. We love you so much, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.